Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of another? What do you think? This is the question the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip in Acts chapter 8 when when he was reading Isaiah 53. The eunuch said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of another? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, this is my task this morning. Beginning from this scripture to preach Jesus to you the author and captain of our salvation. For those of you here who love Christ, who believe in Him, who have life in Him, this psalm will comfort you. This psalm will stir your heart to affections and to love for Christ. It will increase your faith and your assurance. But for those of you not yet followers of Christ, it will show you of your great need for a Savior, and it will show you of how strong a Savior the Lord Jesus is. It will demonstrate to you the love and the mercy and the grace of God which He's shown you in the person and work of Christ. And this psalm, this psalm is a call. This psalm is a summons to come in faith to Christ as your only hope for eternal life. Now, by way of introduction, we should note that this is a unique psalm and it therefore should be treated uniquely. How do we know that this is somewhat of a unique psalm? Well, first, this is not the prayer of any private man. This is the prayer of a public man, a representative. Psalm 22, our text this afternoon, is found within a cluster of five kingship psalms. Psalms 20 and 21, they focus on the Messiah's kingship. Psalms 23 and 24, They focus on Yahweh's kingship, God's kingship and rule over everything. But Psalm 22, our text, is in the middle of this cluster of five kingship psalms. And the focus is on both the Messiah's kingship as well as Yahweh and God's kingship. Although there's no mention of an anointed one or a Messiah in this text, we know this to be the focus from the content. We know that this is a public man, a son of David. The psalmist describes the attack of his enemies as those of powerful bulls, of lions, of horns of oxen. And in the scriptures, these often indicate for us the forces of international powers. These are the attacks of a cohort of international powers uh, against a king, a Davidic king. So the psalm is describing the sufferings of the Lord's anointed one. This is not the prayer of a private man, but it is of a public man. But secondly, David does not speak of himself here or any other mere man. Rather, he speaks of the God-man, the Christ. And immediately for the Christian, when you read this psalm, the Holy Spirit makes known to you that this was the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. I can even remember reading this psalm just a few weeks or months after being born again, having very little Bible knowledge, recognizing that this was Christ's prayer on the cross. It doesn't take much Bible knowledge to know that these are the words, these, this is the meditation of Christ on the cross as quoted in the Gospels. So this will be our focus. We will open up this psalm 
looking unto Jesus, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Now, if this is Christ's prayer, if this is the prayer of the God-man, the man Christ Jesus, uniquely on the cross, how are you to pray this psalm? This is one of the questions that we will be answering as we progress. The title of my sermon this afternoon is Our Savior's Sufferings and Gain. And these are the two main heads of the text. In verses 1 through 21, we see our Savior's sufferings. In verses 22 through 31, we see our Savior's gain. Now to begin with our Savior's suffering, the psalm opens up with this cry of dereliction and abandonment. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately, as I've said, we recognize this to be Christ's cry on the cross. This is the prayer. This is the holy meditation of the Savior in his darkest hour. Christ cries out. He says, you are God. You are my God. Yet you have forsaken me. You are far from me. I cry, but you do not hear. You do not answer me. Christ is forsaken by God. He is crushed by the Father, as Isaiah says. He's smitten by God and afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We see the cry of the suffering servant of God. Now we must ask the question, how is he forsaken? How is this one crushed? This psalm answers this question for us in the most descriptive, the most vivid way. And the answer we get is that he was forsaken, he was crushed in his whole man, in the fullness of his humanity. Now you see the curse which Adam brought upon us for his first sin, and the curse which we bring upon ourselves for our own actual sin in this life is the curse of death. It is the curse of the whole man, both of the body and of the soul. In order for us to be really redeemed, we must be fully redeemed, completely redeemed in both body and soul. And if there is to be someone, if there's to be someone to stand in our place as our surety, as our sponsor, as our substitute, then he must come as a complete man. And he must experience the full weight of God's wrath in his human body and in his human soul. This is our only hope for salvation from the curse and our only hope for reconciliation to this most holy God. And this is what we see in the psalm. We see a man suffering in body and soul. Perhaps some of the descriptions of the sufferings stuck out to you as we read the text. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and feet. These bulls and lions and oxen and dogs have encompassed him. They surround him. They hold him in. They've taken him captive and he's being tortured. This is not the description of any common suffering. This is the description of an execution. He's being scourged. He's being pierced and put to death by a band of evildoers. This is an execution. This is a crucifixion. And again, we are reminded that this cannot be literally said of David. David suffered a great many sufferings, but he was never executed. This cannot be literally said of David. Furthermore, 
Crucifixion was completely unknown to David. It would be invented centuries later by the Persians and then perfected by the Romans. So we see even in this description that there is a major prophetic element of this psalm pointing us to another one who would suffer. We see from this psalm the physical agony, the pain and exhaustion that Christ experienced upon the cross. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. He is physically dying. He is physically suffering torment. He feels as if his bones are out of joint. His tongue cleaves to his mouth. He's extremely dehydrated. He says in verse 17, I can count all my, all my bones. His body is shriveling away. It's wasting away. All his strength is taken away. He's sinking into death. He's in excruciating pain. He's in a crucifying pain. He's being executed in a most cruel and murderous manner. He says there's none to help. He says that in verse 11. These people who speak to him and mock him in verses 6 through 8, in verses 11 through 18, they have now degenerated into beasts. They are irrational brutes. They are mad in their rage. They are insane in their bloodthirst for him. This man, this worm is nothing to preoccupy their minds. He's worthless to this band of evildoers. He is only good for his clothes. Verse 18, he says, They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. We know this to be fulfilled in Matthew 27 by the Roman soldiers. But ultimately, this man knows that it is his God who has done this to him. He says to God, You lay me in the dust of death. It is ultimately God who has forsaken him to death forsaken him to the grave. The sovereign Lord who governs all things has purposed this death. It is the Lord's good pleasure. It is the Lord's purpose and will that the Christ be forsaken by God and laid in the dust of death. But we must not make too hard a distinction between what is described for us as more physical sufferings and what may appear to be more spiritual sufferings. We must remember that this is a psalm. This is poetry. This language is figurative. And even if this is literally fulfilled in his physical death, this language is figurative and can describe for us his soul sufferings. The piercing, the bones out of joint, the being poured out, the laying in the dust may also be used to describe Christ's soul sufferings. The Puritans used to say, the soul of Christ's sufferings were the sufferings of his soul. Say that again. The soul of Christ's sufferings were the sufferings of his soul. We must not pass over the physical sufferings and death or make too little of his bodily suffering. We believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, of the substance of Mary who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Christ really died. He truly died. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah says. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, his wounds were healed. We must not speak too lightly or too little of the blood of the only begotten Son of God. We must not ignore the scourging and the beating that he took in his flesh. We must not overlook the spitting and the mocking and the crown of thorns thrust into his head. We must not neglect the stabbing and the piercing of his hands and feet and the hours of agonizing to struggle, to breathe while fixed to the cross. All of this was real. All of this was necessary. And why? To make atonement for sin. In order to save his people from their sin, he must pay the price for their sin. We've broken the law in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Therefore, Christ must suffer the full penalty of our law-breaking. We deserve death in the body. Therefore, he must suffer death in the body. Christ was made to be sin in his body. Our flesh is sinful. Therefore, he must suffer hell in his flesh. Yet still, the soul of his sufferings were the sufferings of his soul. He must not only suffer hell in his body, but he must suffer hell in his soul. He must be completely and totally forsaken by God. And again, we see the anguish, we see the sufferings of his soul described for us vividly in our text. In verses 6 through 8, he's a reproach of men. He's despised by the people. Those who pass by, they sneer at him, they laugh at him, they scorn and mock. The words in verse, in verse 8, they're the same words spoken in Matthew 27 by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes as Christ is affixed to the cross. They say, they say, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. While in his darkest hour, Christ was taunted and ridiculed by his enemies. At the beginning of that week, they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They cheered him. Now they mock him. They curse him. They kill him. The Son of God who created them, who gave them life and breath and all good things, was mocked and cursed by his creatures. The ones whom he gave life to were putting him to death. They tempted him to forsake his God. They tempted him to disbelieve and to reject his Father, but he did not. He remained faithful to the very end. He felt the full force of this in his soul. In verses 1 and 2, we see his groaning and his crying out. He says, I have no rest. He was brought before Herod, before Pilate, before the Jews. There was no break for Christ. There was no breath. The eternally glorious and infinitely powerful Son of God voluntarily took the form of a man. Yet here he says he is made to feel less than a man. He says, I am a worm and not a man. Meaning what Isaiah says in chapter 53 again, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ was despised by his enemies, but even his disciples, his closest, closest friends would, would be ashamed, would abandon him, would scatter. He was made to feel even less than a man. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt this way. 
Can you imagine? Can you understand the sorrow, the grief, and the fear that Christ must have felt? I wonder if you can imagine the great shame and the disgust that he endured. Can you get a sense of the confusion and the chaos in his mind? Jesus was sinless and holy in every way. He unceasingly loved God and loved sinners. There was nothing he did to deserve this. And think with me too about the daily sufferings of Christ. How he must have felt his entire earthly life. Think about the daily suffering he, he must have felt just due to, the fa- due to the fact that he was walking this earth with sinners. Jesus, the God-man, perfect in his nature and conduct, free from all corruption, always doing the will of his Father, he walked this earth amongst sinners. The perfectly holy and blessed Son comes to earth to take the form of a man and a servant of sinners. And every sin, every sin which he observed in others, every transgression of man was not only a sin against God's law, it was a sin against himself. All iniquity, whether directed against his humanity, his human humanity or not, was ultimately a sin against this divine person. It was his law that they were violating. It was his commands that they were breaking. How he must have been grieved all of his days, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But here we see the Savior even rejected by God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no answer from heaven. There's no consolation. There's no pleasing look from the Father to the Son. Heaven is silent. In this darkest and saddest hour, the Savior is totally forsaken by God. Just as He was made to be sin in His body, He is made to be sin in His soul. Not only must He suffer bodily death, but He must suffer soul death. The Father was laying His body in the grave, but His soul was descending into hell. We get a peek here at the hellish anguish of His soul. The guilt for sin laid upon the whole Christ and his soul was separated from his most blessed communion with God. He who knew no flesh became flesh for us. And that self-same one who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the worst sinner the world has ever seen before the Father. The most perverted adulterer. The vilest murderer the most horrid liar, the the foulest blasphemer. The sins of the world were imputed to him and he suffered hell for it. If Christ's communion, if his blessedness was not cut off from the Father here on the cross, if he did not experience the wrath of God Almighty against sin and sinners in his soul, then his death would have been for nothing. He must suffer the full weight of sin and wrath in his soul. He must be totally forsaken of God. He must be cut off from that blessedness, from the love and the communion which he rightfully deserved with his Father for his obedience. And he did this as your surety, as your substitute. Now you might ask the question, how could the sufferings of a single man for a few short hours pay for the sins of the world. 
How could his few hours of pain and suffering count for so much? It's because this was the sufferings of the eternal Son of God. The Son of the Father took on human flesh, and when he suffered in his body and his soul, that suffering was of infinite value. He suffered under the full weight of God's wrath, but God sustained him and brought him through that suffering. Therefore, his sacrifice is of infinite value and worth for us, and it's even enough for you. It is sufficient to pay for your sins, for your lies, for your covetousness, for your adultery and lust, for your murder and your hatred. It is sufficient to cancel your debt and your guilt before a holy God. And his righteousness and his merit is enough for you still. It's enough to make you holy, to make you righteous before God. You see, this was the sufferings of the eternal Son of God. Although it was in his humanity, but still, God, this was the Christ, the God-man. He was the subject of the sufferings. And because of his immeasurable dignity, his innumerable wealth and excellency, his suffering fully satisfied the wrath of God. He perfectly and sufficiently propitiated the wrath of God. He appeased God's wrath. And by doing this, Paul says he became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He did all of this faithfully. He never lost faith in his God. The Apostle Peter says that he committed no sin. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And this we see from our text. We see this in Psalm 22 as well. The psalm goes from complaint to confidence. Complaint to confidence. Complaint to confidence three times. He says, my God. He is crying out to his God. Through faith and through covenant, God is his possession. And what he does is he remembers God's nature and his works in this psalm. We see this. He says, you are holy. He knows God is ever-living and sovereign and strong and righteous. In verse 19, he calls him Lord. He calls on the covenant name of God, who keeps covenant with Israel, who draws near to his people, and who in verse 3 is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He recalls God's work in redemptive history. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But he even finds confidence in the way the Lord has treated him in his own life. He says, You are he who brought me forth from the womb. You have been my God from my mother's womb. God has been a father to him, and he has been God's son. And he remembers God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And I should say quickly before continuing that this, this here is a precious remedy for your soul when you're suffering. Take Christ. Take Christ in his prayer. Take him as an example when you are struggling and suffering. When you're confused and fearful when you are sad and hurt in this life, when it appears that all have abandoned you and heaven is silent, remember Christ here. Christ is enough for your soul. Remember Christ in his darkest hour and how the Father sustained him 
and remain faithful. Remember how Christ remained faithful to the Father. Remember that He was raised from the dead and that He ever lives to intercede for you. You must think on these things as you're suffering. You must believe this. This is the healing balm to your soul. Your Savior knows your state. He knows your every need. So cry out to God as He does. Cry out to Him as my God. Cling to Him in faith and remember who He is as Christ does here. Remember who He is. He is holy. Remember what He has done. He is Redeemer. Remember His faithfulness and goodness. Remember His faithfulness to Israel and to Christ and to even yourself in your own life. Hope in His nature and His works. Christ is faithful. The Father is faithful. And remember that God is within you. He's with you now by His Spirit. Well, we see Christ's final petition made to God in verses 19 through 21. In summary, he says there, Be not far off. He says, Save me. Deliver me from death. This request, again, reminds us of the nature of his sufferings. He knows he is being executed. He's being sentenced to death in his body and his soul. And he pleads with God to deliver him from hell. And we come to the climax of this psalm at the end of verse 21. If you remember in verse 2, he said, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Now in verse 21, he says, You have answered me. You have heard me. You have answered. The silence of heaven breaks and the Father has answered the Son. Christ's prayer and His sufferings have been received by God. The silence has been broken. Christ has remained faithful and God always remains faithful. This is why Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel or the gospel according to David. Christ has done it. The suffering He experienced with the suffering that we deserve. He drank down the cup of God's wrath, which was coming for us, which was coming for you. Behold the justice of God against sin, the justice which we deserve, and behold what grace in Jesus. Behold what grace to take the wrath of God for us. Behold your Savior here. Christ came and went willingly to the cross. His life was not taken from him, but he laid it down willingly. He went freely to Calvary. He went willingly to be judged and forsaken as a sinner, though he himself was blameless. Behold the grace of God in accepting the payment on our behalf. What justice, what grace, what terrible suffering, what, what glorious news for us in Christ's death. God is just to be the justifier of your soul. This should propel you to praise. When you look upon Christ, what do you see? What do you feel when you look at Christ? Are you affected by His sufferings? Are you amazed and even brought to tears of joy and thankfulness as you consider His infinite mercy and grace? Are you in awe of the love that He has shown you so undeservingly? Do you feel the weight of your sins when you look at Christ? Do you feel the weight of your sins as they were put upon Him? Do you love Him? Do you rejoice in Him? Can you say, Oh, how can it be that you, my Savior, would die for me, a poor and wretched sinner? Can you say, Oh, what a Savior? Can you say that He is my Savior? I pray you can. I pray you do. 
that you would know the love of God in Christ. Well, this brings us to our second point. The Savior's gain. We see this in verses 22 through 31. And in these verses, we see three rewards which Christ has won. Christ accomplished His work given to Him by the Father, and He has received certain rewards for that work. Firstly, we see that Christ has won the glory of God. He says to the Father in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The author of Hebrews picks up this verse in, in Hebrews chapter 2 where he's arguing for Christ as man, for Christ's superiority, superiority over the angels as a man. And he quotes this. His argument is that Christ has now become God's worship leader. Christ himself and those who fear the Lord will praise him. We see this in our text. We see that those who fear the Lord will praise him. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. These, they will glorify him and stand in awe of him. In verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, they will fear him. In verse, pardon, in verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. They will worship him. They will bow down before him in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Christ here has gained the glory of God. And in proclaiming God's name to his brethren, he not only tells God's word to his brethren as a prophet, but he does God's work in them. As in, in, he does God's work in his brothers. And we see this as a, this is our second point of what Christ has won. Secondly, Christ has gained the salvation of his people, both the descendants of Israel, according to the flesh. We see that in verse 22. And he also gained the salvation of his people, of the Gentiles, of those in the great assembly. We see this in verse 25. Look with me at verse 24 again. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. You see, Christ is proof that the Lord will not despise nor abhor the affliction of the afflicted. In Christ's deliverance from death and hell, he has won deliverance for all his people. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. It says, prosperity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. You see, Christ has won deliverance. He's won righteousness and forgiveness of sins for his seed and for his posterity. All those who are now born of the Spirit of Christ, they are brothers and sisters of Christ. They are children of God. And they declare, we see this, they declare Christ's righteousness because it has been imputed to them. They know God's righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. He is that righteous Davidic king who leads the people of God into the temple of God to offer sacrifices and to eat and to worship. Only Christ is not an earthly king 
who leads the people into the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and worship. Rather, Christ is the heavenly king who offers himself as the sacrifice and leads his people into the heavenly temple to worship God. Thirdly, we see in our text that Christ has won a kingdom for himself. Jesus says in Luke 22 to his disciples, Just as my Father has covenanted to me a kingdom, I covenant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And we see Christ's kingdom clearly in our text. In Christ's kingdom, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Verse 26. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. In verses 27 and 28, we see that Christ's kingdom is universal. He rules over all the nations. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship as the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham, that there would be a seed coming from Abraham to bless the nations. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, if you're Gentile, it doesn't matter your skin color or your nationality. Christ's kingdom is universal. He rules over all nations, all peoples. And in verses 30 and 31, we see that Christ's kingdom is perpetual. It is everlasting. His seed will serve him. The work of the Lord will be told to a coming generation. A people yet to be born will come and worship. And they will say, he has performed it. He has done it. This final phrase can also be translated, it is finished. The final words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John. For this reason, we may believe that Psalm 22 was the extended meditation of Jesus on the cross. This prayer was his complaint and his confidence in the Lord. This psalm was his hope. This was his guarantee that he would succeed in redeeming God's people. Behold your Savior, then. Look at him here. Look at what he has done. He says, it is finished. He has done it. He has performed it. He has won it. Now, I want you to see one more thing before we come to conclude. I want you to see from our text the whole gospel. What infinite mercy and grace is laid up before us in the mystery of Christ. The Holy Spirit in this psalm gives us a Jesus-eyed view of the cross. From an early age, Jesus knew he had a mission to accomplish. Jesus knew that he had come to earth as a man with a specific purpose, a specific goal. And he set his face like a flint toward that end. You see, an eternal and everlasting and unbreakable covenant was made between the Father and the Son. And in this most blessed and most glorious covenant, the Son and the Father make certain commitments to one another. The Father gives the Son a specific work, and He promises to supply His Son with His Spirit for that work. And as a reward for that work, the Father will give the Son a kingdom. The Father will reward Him with a kingdom and a people. He will appoint the Son as a mediator for the people. The Father says in Isaiah 42, verse 6, I will appoint him as a covenant to the people. And the Son, in turn, 
promises, he commits to accomplish this work. He commits to the doing and the dying. He commits to obeying God's law, and he does this threefold. He obeys God's moral law. He obeys God's ceremonial and civil law in Israel. And he obeys this law that the Father has given him from all eternity. From all eternity, the Son committed to take on human flesh, to perfectly obey, and then to suffer on behalf of sinners. And for his obedience, the Father rewards him with resurrection, with eternal glory, which we were reading about in in 1 Corinthians 15. He rewarded him with glory. For his victory, the Father rewards the Son with a people and a kingdom. This kingdom is the new covenant. It is the new creation. Christ came to win that kingdom. Christ came to win that people. He came as a mediator of a better covenant with better promises, namely justification, regeneration, adoption, sanctification, preservation, resurrection, glorification. Christ came to win it all. This is the mystery of Christ. This is the gospel of Christ. Christ has done it. Although he was in the form of God, he came low to sinners. He came near to sinful men and he did this as your surety. He did this as your sponsor before the Father. He did this as your head and your mediator. And we see this beautifully from our text. Who is it who suffers and offers himself as a sacrifice to God? but a priest. Who is it who declares God's name to his brethren, his word and his works? Who is it who does that? But a prophet. Who is it who rules a kingdom, who leads his people into the temple of God to offer sacrifices and to worship? But a king. It is from this eternal covenant between father and son. It is from this that the infinite mercies of God flow down to us. The free and the sovereign good pleasure of the triune God is the source of our salvation. It's the fountain from which all of our blessings and benefits flow. He has performed it. He has done it. The Father decreed it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. It's all of God. Therefore, no man can boast. You can only reach out your hands and receive it as a gift. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe it? I don't just mean, do you believe this to be true? I mean, do you believe this to be true for you? Are you trusting in the free grace of God? Are you believing in Jesus as your surety, your sponsor and substitute before God? Is your only hope in the doing and the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then you're like the mockers in verses 6 through 8. You're like them who are the sinners at the cross. And you have reason to fear the wrath of God, for it's still upon you. And you must drink it down yourself. If you're trusting in your own doing, if you are trusting in your own righteousness and standing before God, or if you think too lightly of your own sins, then you must face the torments of hell yourself. And if they gave Christ such agony on the cross... How do you think you will fare? How do you think you will hold up? You cannot overcome his wrath. And know this as well. Verse 29 says that all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. 
You may bow willingly now, or you'll be forced to bow before King Jesus at the resurrection. Now you may say to me, I am trusting. I am believing. I don't know if I'm believing enough. Or you may say, I am believing, but I keep sinning. What should I do? Well, the word in verse 8 for to commit yourself or to trust yourself literally means to cast yourself, roll yourself, roll yourself upon Christ, cast yourself upon him and he will support you. He will keep you and hold you. He's promised to do it. He will do it. Look to the cross and cast yourself upon his all-sufficient sacrifice. He has performed it. Faith is believing what God has done and what God has said and believing it for yourself. You must believe this. It's your only hope. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was fitting for God in order to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through many sufferings. And he tells us that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, so that he may be able to make propitiation and to appease the wrath of God for his people. Then the author of Hebrews says this, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of able for you today. Are you tempted to give up? Are you suffering? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? then he will come to you. He is your brother. He is the victor, and you are now joint heirs with him. He paid his very life for you, and he did it for you. So look to Jesus. Remember Jesus. In both your physical sufferings and in your soul sufferings, you can cry out to him. You can pray this psalm, looking unto Jesus. You can take hope in your final deliverance in the resurrection. Christ was raised and exalted into glory as reward, and now you benefit from that reward. He was raised and exalted. Likewise, you will be raised and exalted like your elder brother. You will be raised and exalted into glory. Pray this psalm then, looking unto Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and not grow faint. Fix your eyes of faith on Christ, who was forsaken by God in your place. It will help you to live. It will help you to die. And he promises that you will be raised with him to see Christ face to face. What would you do without Christ? What would you be without him? Let us call on the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for... Psalm 22 and the depiction, the picture, the story that it is for us. We thank you, God, that our salvation, our redemption is grounded and rooted. It is based in that eternal covenant of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that our salvation is unfading, unmoving, that it is imperishable. We thank you for Christ's work on our behalf. We thank you for his perfect person. We thank you for his obedience, for his propitiatory death on our behalf for sinners. We pray, God, that you would give us greater faith in our sufferings and our trials.
Help us to look unto Jesus in all things. Help us to live like Christ. Help us to believe in all of your promises that you have given to us. God, we pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. We pray that Christ would be honored here today in our worship. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.